A previous episode of Software Engineering Daily called You Are Not a Commodity received a lot of feedback, both negative and positive. The episode was a monologue that I wrote about why engineers should build products on their own as a default career path, rather than work at a large corporation as their default career path. A Reddit thread about this episode was almost entirely negative. Most of the emails I received about the episode were very positive. There was clearly a mixed response. There were some regular listeners who wrote in and said they had those kinds of mixed feelings. And one of those listeners was Preeti Kasireddy, who was a previous guest of the show. She was on talking about her transition from venture capital to software engineering. That's a very interesting episode. I recommend checking it out. And in this episode, Preeti gives some counter-arguments and questions uh, around the ideas that were presented in this episode. You are not a commodity. Um, if you're interested in these topics that I'm discussing, you might want to check out that episode before you listen to this one. Uh, this episode is going to be a useful discussion for anyone who is thinking about their own career path and whether to go work for a company or to do something on their own. Um, the previous episode, You Are Not Commodity, Commodity, was on a weekend. It was an episode without any ads, but uh, I feel like this follow-up discussion was a little more uh, substantive, and uh, so this is I'm airing it during the week. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and definitely give me some feedback on if you like this discussion, if you want more episodes that are discussing this matter. Um, certainly the emails I've received so far sound like people do want to hear more about alternative career strategies. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. Preeti Kasireddy, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. For those who don't know, you were on a previous episode about your transition from venture capital to software engineering. And today we're going to discuss this episode that I did a couple weeks ago called You Are Not a Commodity which you had some feedback about, you had some comments and questions, and you wanted to discuss it. But before we get to discussing that episode, why don't we talk a little bit about where you are in your transition from venture capital to software engineering um, and how that transition has gone for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's been, I think, almost a year since we chatted uh, on Software Engineering Daily. And in that time, so I went through this uh, coding program called Hack Reactor, and after that, I did some work on my own independently as like a contractor type of thing. And uh, that was phenomenal. I gained some experience doing that. And then I made my transition to do doing full-time software engineering at a company called Coinbase. And what we do is we build a digital currency platform for people to trade Bitcoin and Ethereum and in the future, other types of currencies as well. And we're trying to like uh, create a financial system for the future uh, based on the blockchain. And so I've been there for a little over three months and it's been a phenomenal experience, um, really learning a lot as a full-time software engineer. And so when I came across your podcast, um, it was interesting to hear because I mean, obviously as someone who comes from venture, venture capital, um, I'm very uh, involved and uh, very attracted by the entrepreneurial sort of mindset. And as an engineer, I, I, I have that still in me. And it was interesting to hear your kind of preach to just go out and do your own thing. But I obviously had some questions about like, for just a software engineer, like how it's even possible to make that transition. 
Yeah, and so before we get into that, how how does my perspective contrast with the perspectives that you have been exposed to through venture capital and through your work at Coinbase, which is obviously early on in its uh, in its company lifetime. There's a lot of entrepreneurial people there. Um, how, how does my perspective contrast with theirs? I guess, like you know, you talk about in your in your perspective, you talk about engineers sort of at bigger companies and sort of like larger corporations. Uh, meanwhile, I'm working at a startup, so it's slightly different in that sense. And you kind of have, as an engineer, you have a lot more uh, freedom and leverage to kind of build and do work on what you want at a startup. And you'd get to do a lot more than what you might do at a big corporation where you have one single role, I'd mm. say. Okay. Cool. Well, so why don't we get into some of the discussion that you were interested in talking about? This will be slightly different than most of the episodes because you have some questions for me. Uh, most of the time I'm asking the questions. So I guess go ahead and ask me what you're interested in discussing. Yeah, sure. So I think one of the first things you talked about were like, as an engineer, you know, you you felt that you are not being compensated as much as, or like as an engineer, you have so much more leverage these days and the work you do at a corporation is not compensating you enough for the leverage you can go and get out in the real world. But before a person or a software engineer can go out in the real world, how much experience do you, like real world experience do you think an engineer needs before they're like ready to actually go out and build a product? Can like a college grad who completely the new grad go out and do this or do they need like a couple years of experience to see how software is built in production before they go out and do something like this well the that that definition of real world experience can kind of vary depending on who you are some people will say real world experience means working at a big corporation or even a startup and seeing how the sausage is made uh the thing is Whenever you work at one of these places, your your view on how things are built, how things should be built, in, inevitably gets biased towards how the last place you worked at uh, functioned. And so there's there's positives and negatives to going to a, an organization to see and seeing how it works. Um, so, so I don't think it's like strictly advantageous to go and get quote real world experience. So anybody that has been alive long enough to learn to code has real world experience. They just they may not have real world experience building a software product, but they have enough real world experience to see you know some problems that exist in the world. They've probably seen how some businesses work um, and they probably have ideas for for things that they could build or at least areas that they're interested in. So I think, you know, by the time you're 10 or 15 years old or 20 years old or 25 years old or 30 years old or however old you are at the point at which you learn to code, you have enough, quote, real world experience. You may not have real world experience building a company, but in some ways that can be advantageous. I mean, look at Facebook. You know, Facebook was built by somebody who had not, built a company before and the result is that you have this really strange company structure that works 
really, really effectively. I mean, how how long have we had internet businesses in the world? Not very long, like 20 years, 30 years, maybe. And so how many different models for building a company have been explored? Not a lot. And so it's it may be advantageous to have a minimum of experience because then you're just looking at everything with really fresh eyes. That makes sense. I guess like some of the examples you pointed, like Facebook, I think some people like through their childhood experiences, they just mature a lot faster, maybe um, like sometimes even like 10 years faster than some other individuals. So like, do you think this advice kind of skews to the person who sort of has had that real world exposure and kind of knows what they want to do versus the person who might be a little bit more sheltered, kind of grew up in a very home, homely life and doesn't really know what to do when they go out there? That is partly true there, but for anybody who has, you know, admittedly lived somewhat of a sheltered life, I I mean, I think we're we're all probably, you know, if we're just coming out of college, we're all insulated to some degree. Uh, We all have limited sets of experiences. Um, But, you know, thanks to the internet, there's plenty of things you can read about that will, you know, de-insulate you. Uh, There are ways to have broader experiences um, but there's also, you know, advantages to being to having insulated experiences because if you have extremely specific sets of experiences, then maybe that's like the customer base or the user base that you want to serve. Like for example, I spent uh, many years playing poker online, and that biases me towards thinking about the like the problems that online poker players have, which most most people would not be would not be thinking about um and it insulates me in some sense uh from uh, you know wider sets of problems that real that normal everyday people have that are not gamblers um but it might inform more specific interesting uh problems that i could build for that customer base interesting um i think i generally agree with that like for example peter thiel's program he he pitches that like a student doesn't even need college and they can sort of start building right after high school and you get like a very tailored experience through that program and the success of that right is still exactly hard to um measure, I, it's totally true i can see the point of view that like if you just throw someone out in the real world they'll figure it out versus being cushioned the whole time um i can see that point of yeah. view as well I, but just something to consider. Um, then the next question would be, like, let's say someone does have the courage to go out and build something and follow your advice. Um, they do have to still make a living and uh, enough to pay rent and food and the basic minimum expenses to live. So how do they come up with something that will actually generate enough money for them to stay afloat while they do this? I mean, there's different approaches to this. Uh, you know, you can, if you're really risk prone, you can take out loans or uh but the you know one approach i've seen from my little brother is he's doing this lifestyle arbitrage thing where he travels around the world to places like thailand or the philippines where it's super cheap to live and you can work on consulting projects either on upwork or if you start your own little consulting business you can you can make a good amount of money even as a somewhat introductory programmer and you can live in these in these fairly cheap to live places 
you can also do this thing that uh, there was a guy I had on the show a while ago who had also gone to Hack Reactor. He'd actually gone to two coding boot camps, and instead of going to work for a company, he just went to live at home with his parents. So, you know, he had parents who were willing to house him while he could work on his own stuff there, and and so that's what he did. Uh, you know, not everybody has these luxuries. Obviously, um, you know, maybe people have no no money saved up. Uh, they can't go to work at. Uh, they can't. They can't do uh, any explorative stuff because they have no money saved up. They don't want to take out loans. Um, they may have a family, and in these types of situations, you probably have to do some sort of planning up front where you say, "Okay, I'm going to work for X months or X years and save up enough money to do some sort of explorative, uh, you know, coding journey." But in any case, like the the time the time horizon for that type of decision would still be like three to five years, which is not that long if you're thinking in terms of like this is the way that I want to organize my life. I want to organize my life around building things and having a lot of autonomy over the things that I work on. Um, so so in any case, like the financial framework that you you take to this. Uh, this process uh, may take some time to arrange, but it's totally worth it. Um, and if if you are if you're younger or if you have fewer things that you're tied down to, then you can make it. You can you can actualize it a lot faster. You can find different ways to go off on your own building type of experiments. Um, but if you're older, if you have more ties or more debts or something, it may take longer to navigate your way towards that direction. Yeah, exactly. And I think like you, you had an interesting uh, on that on the on the note of like money and making enough money. You had an interesting stat where you sort of talked about how Apple or Google make a million dollars per year on you, but they pay you much less than that. And that's that's probably true in like an absolute sense, right? Like because they have a certain number of profits, you divide that by, by the number of people in the company. Um, but if you're going out as an individual trying to build a product, you don't have that network, you don't have that customer base that Apple or Google or big corporation has built over time. So do you think it's fair to say that like an individual co- can go out and make a million dollars a year? Or is it, is it, is, is there, is it ske- skewed a little bit higher just because they're working at a bigger company and the bigger company has some leverage that you don't? Well, I mean, so so one of the things that I'm pretty biased on in this post that may not come through as clear is that, like, th- you know, there's such a, such a diminishing return on the amount of money that you need these days just because, like, a smartphone is, like, the best thing that you can possibly have in the world and it only costs 600 bucks. Um, so, so maybe you don't need to make a million dollars a year immediately, or you don't need to make $200,000 a year, uh, immediately working at a big company. But so that, that kind of evades your point. Your point is that, you know, you, when you go to work at these companies, you have the, you have the leverage, the company gives you the leverage to generate $2 million a year. And then the company captures 90 or 80% of that that profit and then they only give you you know $150,000 $200,000 to take home um you know I, i'm not sure for most people 
how much difference the $150,000 versus the $2 million would actually make in their lives. But my point was more that like, if you're coming at this from a financial sense, you would be better served to try to build one of these type of revenue-generating monstrosities than to work as a subservient agent of of one of them. Um, so, like, you know, pe- people look at people look at that that chart and they're like, oh, you know, it's uh, this, that's a horrible deal for the people working there. And I look at it and I'm like, well, that's a great that is a great revenue-generating machine piece of machinery. Uh, that they've built, but I, I guess your question was more around, uh, like, if, like, how, you know, how can you build the customer base or the network that you would need to catch up to this type of uh, revenue generating engine, um, which I guess is more of a social question. Like, how do you build the network? How do you build the customer base? Because you're not at this company where you have a lot of people to talk to and a lot of and the 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 job of selling to the customer is abstracted away from you. Um, and I think that like part of that social, uh, the social problem to, to tackle the, the problem of becoming an authority on a certain product area or, uh, a certain type of engineering, uh, part of that can be achieved through blogging or Quora or podcasting or, Twitter or these different ways where you can become a social authority on a highly niche topic. Um, you know, there's there there have been models proven uh, for this at this point. Um, like you know, Quincy Larson is the biggest authority on uh, coding education, and he basically became that authority by deciding he was going to become the authority and writing incessantly about it, um, which which you can do regardless of whether you are qualified. Uh, for that by having worked in it before, or if you just say that you're going to become qualified by writing about it and researching it. Yeah, interesting. And like, let's say someone, they they do have an ambition to do this, but they don't feel ready or they don't feel like they're financially, um, uh, they're not going to be able to do this financially just yet. So they want to go out and save some money. What a couple questions. So, like, let's say they want to go out in the industry and get some experience in the meantime and save up some money before they do this. A, like, what kind of companies do you think, or what size of companies do you think provide the best experience for someone who's going looking to go out and build something on their own? Two, um, what are the skill sets they should be looking to gaining at these jobs that they take um, before they go out on their own? The probably the best the best place to start is like at a you know, the the mid-size, I mean, I think the typical answer to this question is the mid-size, fast-growing company like Coinbase, where you're at, uh, or like Airbnb or Uber, or these places where they're, they're tackling problems of like really fast growth, and then there's a lot of opportunity for people to jump into like even if you're a, an engineer that that has little experience but you gain a, you gain you know 5 or 6 months of experience in in the domain that you're working in like probably after 3 or 4 months of Coinbase you can probably think of applications that you could build within Coinbase that would have a lot of uh, upside for the company so you could have a little you know entrepreneurial venture within the company um, but I think also there's a lot of value to going to these bigger, more ancestral companies like, you know, like I worked at Amazon 
And it was very fascinating because it was it was almost like I mean I thought about it as like being in like a museum. It was almost like just walking around and seeing how this stuff was like thinking about how the culture was built to be able to scale over twenty years and and maintain these properties where people are uh, proactive and they're leaders and they're opinionated about stuff. Um, so so really like like any type of company is going to give you interesting uh, experiences either about what you uh, what you like or what you dislike uh, you know it, it, and and different perspectives into how a company is at the beginning and how a company is 20 years into it depending on you know if you want to think about how you're going to build a lasting company like a Google then you know maybe it's better to go to a Google Um but your, I think your other question was like, what skills should you build while you're at these companies? Um, and you know, I think there's, you, you know, you can you can build all kinds of skills. Probably uh, the things to focus on are what you could learn within that company that you can't learn anywhere else. Um, you know, like uh, if you're at Coinbase, you probably have access to. Uh, you know, ways you, you probably have access to information about how people scale, how companies can scale Bitcoin systems and uh, the domain, the specific domains of uh, and challenges for for um, for building those types of systems. And you're not going to be able to find that information on Medium or on Quora or read about it or hear about it in a podcast. So it would be interesting and unique to, and it would give you specific. Uh, highly differentiated sets of skills to focus on those sorts of things, um, you know, not not to the, not to the detriment of you know learning React JS or Ruby on Rails or whatever more generalized skills you could learn uh, at this place, but um, it, it, there is a there is a type of differentiated information that you will get uh, by virtue of working at some uh, established company. Interesting. That's definitely true. Do you think that if someone goes works at a financial company versus working at like maybe a social media company, do you think that their experiences there influence what they end up doing? Definitely. But, you know, you can have different experiences. You know, it depends what what product you're working on uh, at that given company. But, you know, other times, you know, like I, I, I worked at Amazon and I'm I am but don't have any plans to build an e-commerce business. So the things that the things that I took away from from Amazon were more about the culture uh, and the the attitudes of the people there rather than the specific products that they were building. One advice that I've always heard is like obviously like at some point I don't know whether it's in the next year or the next five years I will go out and build something on my own. Uh, but when I tell this to people, the advice they often give me is, why don't you, instead of making the full jump, why don't you do something on the side, like on nights and weekends? What do you think about that idea instead of sort of going in and jumping into this 100%? It's not a bad compromise. Um, so, you know, like near the end of college, I just started realizing that I was having a, a lot of fun building stuff. And it was much more fun for me than playing video games or going to concerts or whatever. And so that realization has kind of propelled me to just do this stuff, whether I'm working at a big company or now, you know, doing software engineering daily, all of my spare time is spent building stuff. 
Uh, and so the the decision to be building stuff is sort of agnostic of am I at a company or am I on my own? Um, and like, I guess the, the, the importance of something that I'm building being viable as a business is, is more important now that I'm on my own. Like I had to figure out some way to build an actual, uh, uh, business kind of before I, I left, uh, I left Amazon, but, uh, you know, th- th- I guess that is less true if you are, if you are working at, at a, at a company and you have a stable income, you might, the scope of stuff that you explore might be more radical and interesting, but yeah, I mean, that's not a bad compromise. And then my next question is kind of slightly different. It's, let's say someone does go out on their own and they like completely fail. How can they sort of prepare for that ahead of time instead of facing it at the time it happens like what are, what are the things they can do to kind of cushion that failure so that they can pick themselves back up and maybe go on to building on the next thing or maybe take a break and work at a, at a company for a while before doing their next thing for you and i you know it's really hard to have what it what you know is a complete failure because regardless of how badly we fail in business ventures we still live in America, and you live in America. You have clean water, uh, access to to toiletries, and it's like it's really hard to imagine something. You know, f- having a business failure where you uh, somehow lose access to like having a nice bed to sleep in. Uh, you know, the the downside risk to starting something for most people uh, that are like listening to software engineering daily is really minimal. Um, and so like the main thing that, uh, that scares people the most is the shame rather than it's rather, rather than like the actual, like losing of money or the prospect of having to borrow money from parents or borrow money from friends or, uh, or taking out a loan or going bankrupt or whatever. These things are not actually that scary because they don't really threaten your livelihood in any meaning. Well, for most people, in any meaningful way, it's more like the shame and the stigma of potentially running out of money or failing uh, in that area. Interesting. That makes sense. Um, I know that once uh, once we bumped into a, into a, uh, we bumped into each other at a conference, and I was kind of telling you that I'm doing. Uh, I'm not ready to work at a full-time job yet. I kind of just want to do my own thing. And you were like all for it. Whereas like my friend next to me, my friend next to me was like, no, I think like it'd be good for her to get experience at a full-time company. And you, you kind of like didn't like that idea. So I'm curious. And then I know that you're an example of someone who sort of left their full-time job to do this podcasting thing and you're making a career out of it. So how did you make that jump and like, how how long did it take for you to sort of get settled and actually figure the whole thing out financially? And like, are you satisfied or do you feel like you're going to probably do something else later? Yeah. So to be clear, I probably would have gotten fired from Amazon in the next like two to four months or something because I really was not performing well. I was not because uh, I I just didn't really like the work and I couldn't find myself I couldn't I wasn't focusing on it. I shouldn't say I couldn't but I wasn't focusing on it um, but at the same time I was just thinking about software engineering daily and the idea of a podcast and it just made sense to me that this could make enough money as a lifestyle business so 
so I stumbled, kind of stumbled upon the idea of what would be a decent lifestyle business uh, right when I, <laughs> right when I probably needed it. Um, so it's kind of a lucky coincidence. And um, so as far like, am I satisfied? I mean, I I'm really enjoying my life right now because my day to day is I get to talk to interesting people. And I have a lot of control over what I'm doing, but like, let's be clear: I'm not building software. I'm sort of an armchair architect. Uh, I think I can't remember. It was some guest recently coined that term. Um, and so, like, I, I, you know, I think of it as very much as like kind of a the like just another like training cycle for me. You know, it's it's a it's uh, it's you know the 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 process of like understanding. Uh, how advertising sales work in a podcast has been really interesting because you know that is really important for me to understand in order to get uh, in order to stay afloat as uh, as a podcaster um, and understanding like to what degree do I need to grow uh, and then kind of understanding like what is you know, if this podcast failed what would I do and like thinking about the the uh, the downside risk um, but like. I, I mean, I'm working on some other software projects on the side, and you know, eventually, I'll I'll be doing something else. Like, I, I I'm sure I'll always be interested in the media side of software engineering, but I definitely want to build uh, build software because, like, this is you know, to be clear, like podcasting about for me at least, podcasting about software is so much easier than actually writing code. Interesting. Uh, but I guess like it still falls under the bucket of you're not working for a big corporation and you're trying to f- make money and do something that interests you personally. Uh, yeah. So I kind of it falls under that bucket still, even though you're not building software. I guess like under that subject, what are examples or who are examples of people who are um, building do it, have gone out and done this? Not excluding sort of the the canonical examples like Facebook or or whatnot, but like, do you have examples in mind of sort of smaller companies, people who like are like me and you, who just went out a few years ago to do this on their own, and are really succeeding at it? There's like a range of examples. Um, so at the 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 lower end of generating money, I think there are all kinds of people who who are doing this lifestyle arbitrage thing where they go and live in Thailand or whatever and they're they're just doing consulting work and then maybe they're writing their own thing in their spare time and they can live off of $30,000 a year or $40,000 a year whatever they make consulting and then there's you know people who write WordPress plugins and they make a living off of uh, writing these WordPress plugins and then people buy them often enough for for them to make a living and then as you move up the profitability stack there are people who you know there's like the person who made, I think there's something called Nomad List, which is like basically a way of hiring uh, hiring nomadic programmers. And I think Nomad List makes a lot of money. Uh, there are, uh, I think, you know, sometimes I think of, you know, I'm thinking of people who, who have done this. There's this guy I wrote about in the blog post, the You Are Not a Commodity blog post, this guy, Marcus Friend, who started a dating website uh, that cause he just started it because he was learning C sharp. He's he was literally like, okay, I want to learn C sharp. What's a basic CRUD application I can build? Oh, a dating website. And like ten or fifteen years later, 
yeah, I think this was trending on Hacker News yesterday. He sold it for $575 million. Basically, just this thing that he had started hacking on. Um, and there's also, like, the exa- I think the example of Ethereum is really interesting. I think uh, Vitalik Buterin started it when he was... I think he was basically... Like, he was working on some Bitcoin-related technologies, but mostly he was, like, doing journalism and just writing about Bitcoin and, like, writing about governance stuff and the the, the challenges of, of, uh, of a cryptocurrency protocol. And eventually he was like, oh, I should just do this. And then he kind of turned into this authority uh, on well, what is now Ethereum. You know, he invented it and then uh, became an authority on it. So there's all these different paths that that people can take i think those are mostly my questions uh but this has been super helpful these are kind of the things that are that were like coming up in my mind as i listened to that podcast and i'm sure most other people had the same questions in terms of yeah because like it's not like it's not uncommon for people our age between like in their 20s or 30s um to feel this way and kind of go through these self-doubts and figure feel like, okay, am I really doing anything working for this company or should I be doing something else? Like people kind of go through like an existential crisis during this age, essentially. Um, and every person I've talked to that I know or all my close friends at least are going through the same thinking process. So it's good to kind of hear uh, you go out and tell people like, yeah, it's okay to go out and build something on your own. And even if you fail, it's fine. You're not gonna like, be on the streets necessarily. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.